Hello, lovelies. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that if you are listening to this close to the day it is released and you are eyeing something on impactfashionnyc.com, do not buy it now. Just don't do it. More details will be coming soon. However, if you are listening to this between December 22nd and 28th, 2021, then you're going to want to head over to the website impactfashionnyc.com pronto. I have been cooking up something special for you and it will be up during that time. This week's episode is the second in my winter-long series on mental health with with Rachel Tuckman. If you haven't already heard last week's episode on depression, I highly recommend you go back and give it a listen once you're finished this episode. They do not need to be listened to in order. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. It's Gwitz, and on today's show, we continue a winter-long series on mental health with a discussion on anxiety. We talk about why anxiety can be a good thing, experiencing doubt and treating it like danger, what's happening chemically in the anxious brain, the relationship between anxiety, depression, and my own worry around product launches. Hello, Rachel. How are you doing today? Hi, good. I am... I am, ex- let's, like, this is, this is a, a thing now. Like, we have a standing game now. It's once a week, and we come and we talk about these different mental health topics. Yeah. And today we're doing anxiety, yes. which I'm, ex- I'm, I'm excited about anxiety. This yeah, is fun. to talk about it, to learn about it, to share Exactly. Because I, the, anxiety is something that I fundamentally don't understand, and I'll tell you why. I come from a long line of warriors. I come from a long line of stereotypical Jewish mothers we're very good at imagining the worst case scenario. Nobody, to my knowledge, has like a diagnosed anxiety disorder. Nobody, to my knowledge, is on medication. But like, we worry. So when we talk about anxiety, first of all, can you g- give me a definition? What are we talking about? And, and, and what, like, what does it really mean? So anxiety, I just want to start by saying it's not a bad thing. We all experience anxiety on some level. It's just a part of any normal, healthy person's life. Nature equipped us with this wonderful fight or flight response that keeps us safe, right? It protects us in dangerous situations. So we can face the the threat. We can decide if we think that we need to overcome it or run away from it or if we're afraid we can't win, our anxiety response, like, you know, I'm sure everybody's heard of the fight or flight or freeze response, right? This is literally our brain protecting us and helping us decide in those moments, like what to do. Anxiety can heighten our performance, right? So fear of losing a game can drive us to perform better. Like, hey, I want to win this game. So I'm going to play harder, practice more, whatever it is. So it's a very powerful part of us that protects us when we need it. Versus anxiety that is not healthy, that is worry that is powerful and complex and gets in the way of your life and doesn't really have a real reason. And sometimes you'll feel conflicted because you'll be like, I know I shouldn't be so stressed about this, but like, I can't stop. 
you know? So healthy anxiety can motivate us rather than hinder us. It protects us, right? So if I'm nervous, I'm going to fail the test. I'm going to study more, maybe, right? Ideally, you know, if I'm nervous for the date, I'm going to dress up and present my best self. If I'm nervous for my speaking gig, I'm, I'm going to prepare more. I'm going to make sure that I research the, the place that I'm going for the job interview. So anxiety can actually be really helpful for us. I'm going to be careful when I cross the street because I know that that danger exists. But when that anxiety starts manifesting in ways that don't really make sense or the response seems really not um, appropriate, meaning that it's a lot more intense than it should be, that's when we say, okay, I think this might be a problem. So is the difference... Meaning, is the feeling of worry still the same, regardless of whether or not we're talking about a, like something that needs to be treated or something that is normal, and it's the reaction to that feeling where the problems come in? Sometimes it's the reaction, sometimes it's the intensity, sometimes it's the frequency, and sometimes it's how that impacts you. So you can sometimes be walking around with this like intense worry and stress and fear, but you're still functioning. And so I would say, you don't really want to walk around that way. So it's probably best to get help. But if you're functioning, most people will be like, well, I don't need help. Cause like, yeah, it's annoying that I feel this way, but I'm okay. And so in that you know, circumstance, I would be like, eh, you should probably get help. But when it's really getting in your way, meaning you're afraid to travel, you're afraid to go to school, you're, you know, afraid to, to see people, you're afraid to pursue things in your life. You're, you're freaking out about, you know, everything is a panic attack or a worry or, that's when we say, okay, once it starts impacting your daily living and your ability to pursue things that you're passionate about or that you, you know, whatever it is that are important to you, that's when we say, okay, we need to start reining in the, the anxiety because what you're experiencing is doubt, but you're treating it like danger. And we want to teach you that anxiety is just usually discomfort. What do you mean by that? Experiencing doubt and treating it like danger. What is... That, that's an interesting way to phrase this. So if you have, so let's say first day of school, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're a teenager, which it's scary as all heck ball, right? Like we're not even going to minimize that. So if it's your first day of school and you're a typical teenager, you're going to feel nervous. You know, I hope I make friends. I hope I like the classes, whatever it is. But, you know, you go because again, that's, that's healthy anxiety, right? You go to school, maybe you have a little knot in your stomach, but you get there and you smile and whatever. If you have anxiety, you might have trouble sleeping the night before, have panic attacks. I'm not going to have any friends. What if nobody speaks to me? What if I don't know any of the classes? What if I get lost in, in, in the hallway? What if I get lost in the bathroom? What if I can't find my books? What if I don't have money for lunch? What if I miss the bus? And it's this nonstop kind of like hamster wheel of freaking out about everything, right? And oh my God, like, and then what if, what if the principal kicks me out because she thinks that I'm, and you can't like stay focused and just be like, all right. I'm like nervous. It's my first day. These are normal jitters. I'm okay. So those jitters turn into this rabbit hole of, oh my God, there is a threat to me. I can't go. And then it might be, and I've seen this, you know, it might be hard to get your kid out the door. They don't want to get on the bus. They won't get out of the car. They won't get out of bed in the morning, you know? Um, And that's where we say, we need to talk to someone. We need to challenge these thoughts. We need to pull these things apart and say, is this really danger or is it just discomfort? You know, is this really danger right. or is it just feeling doubt and fear? Right. Which is normal again in these situations. Yeah. It makes sense that you're going to feel anxious and nervous. High school is a big deal, but should you feel 
this extreme about it? Do we have to think about every worst case scenario? And that's what anxiety does, by the way. It thinks of all of the worst things that can happen and it just like gives you the list here. Oh, have you considered this disaster that could happen? And then you're like, oh, oh my God, oh, you know? That's so interesting that you say that because for me, like I said, long line of warriors over here. And for me, I find that there are times when I will get nervous about something. So usually, like you're saying something that you should be nervous about, like it's a, a new product launch or if I'm going on a new a business thing or if I have something going on in my personal life, whatever it is, there are things that I'm nervous about. And what I'll generally find is that sometimes, and I'll even say this to my husband and I'll be like, okay, I need to, I need to just do something dumb for a second. Can we play out the word? case scenario and I'll and, I, and and I'll do it I'll be like let's say for the example of a of a product that I'm launching that I'm not sure if it'll do well I'll be like I everyone's gonna hate it everyone's gonna hate it nobody's gonna buy it um they're not gonna <laughs> this is actually a funnier example I'll do it differently I recently um I recently launched a, the sweater dress the snuggle dress that you know as of when we're recording this it's very recent mm-hmm. and there were a huge amount of pre-orders and I started freaking out because I said to my husband, I said, everyone is, I said, there's more people than ever who are going to get this item on pre-order and they're going to get it and they are all going to hate it. And he said, okay, you know, that's not going to happen. I said, I'm convinced it will happen. They are all going to hate it. And he said, okay. And then what? I said, they're going to hate it and they're going to send it back. And then it's, and then it's, and then they're, they're never going to buy from me ever again. They're always going to think that everything that I ever put out is terrible. And he says, okay. And then what? I said, and then I'll have a lot of these dresses. He goes, okay. And then what? I said, I'll put them on sale. He goes, okay. And then what? I said, I guess they'll get bought on sale. He goes, okay. And then what? And then like, like you go to these, I find that like thinking through the worst case scenario, I guess, of like, no one will ever buy my things and no one will ever love me. Like that makes me feel better. Right. So, I mean, I don't have, as far as I know, I don't have an anxiety disorder. So what, like, at what point does, would someone who does have an anxiety disorder, like at what point would, would you say that like, that that gets off the rails? Like, what does that look like? What does something like that look like when you're dealing with a mental illness? So I would say in your case, it makes sense that you were feeling that way because you were about to do something that was really important to you, right? Right. And so, you know, that felt scary. And then when people were kind of validating that, hey, this is really like great and amazing, we kind of like fall into that like imposter mode of like, oh my God, like, do people actually want my stuff? Like, I don't know what I'm doing, right? right? People believe in me. I, I don't believe in myself, you know, like I'm terrified. You do believe in yourself, but when other people are start believing in you, you start doubting that you believe in yourself, right? It's right. kind of like paradox. Um, but I think that that reaction made sense because it's like, this is really important to me and I really want it to go right. So I'm going to think about, you know, how it might not go right. But in spite of all those fears, you were pushing through. Right. Like there was still stuff that needs to get shipped out and happen. Yeah, and and you're recognizing I need to think about this stuff because it's important to me. I'm not going to be, I'm not, I'm not living in la la land and thinking I'm the greatest designer ever. And this is going to be flawless and perfect. You're understanding I'm human. I can make mistakes. People can be unhappy. This is really important to me. My product is important to me. My name is important to me. So in this case, it makes perfect sense. And that's, that's kind of like the, the differentiating like point is like the context of it, you know? So in this case, I would say, yeah, that makes sense. But then if it got to a point where you were literally not able to function because you were stressing so much about this sweater dress, the snuggle dress, and you were, you know, like paralyzed with fear and you weren't getting done what was supposed to be done and you couldn't stop talking about it. And you were like, everyone's going to hate it. Everyone's going to hate it. Everyone's going to hate it. And you couldn't push through that negative self-talk I would say, okay, I think we have a problem here because the intensity is really like 
too much right now. You know, if you can't stop thinking so negatively, and that's, you know, kind of like one of the, you know, traits of someone with anxiety is they tend to be a more negative thinker, you know, because they're always anticipating the worst case scenario because they feel, because anxiety tells them, if you're prepared, it won't be so bad. If you already knew this was about to happen, you'll feel better, which we know is not true because you can know that someone's about to die. And then when they die, you're still horribly sad. You're not prepared because you were thinking about it, you know? So I think in your case, it's like, it kind of, we have to think about, does it make sense that you're feeling this anxiety and the spirit? Yes. Okay, now let's measure the intensity of it. Okay, now let's look at how it's impacting your productivity and your sleep and your functioning and your appetite. You know, and so then when we look at the bigger picture, we can say, is this a problem or does it make sense right now? You know? So it's really about measuring the response to the trigger, whatever it is. So like if, so if my, if my response, let's say following through this example had been, you know, there's all these pre-orders, everyone's going to get their, get their dress and they're going to hate it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the dress. I'm going to go cry in bed for two days. That would be a problem that would need to be addressed. Obviously that's a little bit of an extreme example, but to kind of clarify the difference between those two. Yeah. Or would make it, but every other part of your life was becoming miserable because you couldn't function because you're putting all your energy into making sure that the dress is done and finished, but then you are a mess in every other area of your life because you give so much energy to making sure that this is done, but you can't function because the anxiety is so crippling, you know? So you can put it aside to make sure that you, you get this dress out there because you have a deadline or because someone's expecting it or whatever, but then in every other area of your life, you can't deal Right. Well, you know, okay, that makes sense. You're, you're irritable, about- your restless, your appetite. Right. Yeah. I yeah. want to get into symptoms in a second because I, but I just want to nail down this point. And that is, it's really about the, you keep using this word intensity. It's about nailing down what, um, it's about having appropriate responses to the general like crap that life throws at us. So if I was having that similar response to someone cut me off in traffic, I would assume, or like something similarly non-consequential, I would assume that that would also be something that we would want to address. Because even though the response might be the same as, you know, this example we're giving with a product launch, the thing that throws it off, you know, the trigger is not nearly as consequential. It's not nearly as important. And it's about the, the relationship between those two things and keeping them you know, if those things are kind of matched up, then that's what we call being human, as opposed to having a small trigger and a big reaction. That's when we need to, that's when something needs to be addressed. Right. If someone cuts me off and I pull out a shotgun, I might need some anger management skills, right? <laughs> like right. <laughs> if someone cuts me off and I like give them a finger and I scream, okay, you know, that's not so great, but like maybe I was having a bad day or, you know, but if, if it's constantly these like really, inappropriate responses, you know, that are really just like off the scales, you know, in terms of the intensity and in, and in terms of like, does this really match like what just happened? Like that you should be reacting like that. Like you don't need to pull a shock out at someone if they cut you off, you might feel like it, but you don't do it, you know? And so that's where we would say, okay, this is a problem. Yes. That this situation does not call for this level of response, you know? Right. Right. This is this, these two things don't match. Okay. That makes sense. Um, chemically in our, in the brains of someone who has an anxiety disorder, what's happening there. Okay. So your brain, like I said, has that fight or flight response, right? And we know your amygdala, which is at the base of your, the stem of your brain that is in charge of taking care of that fight or flight response. So when your body senses some kind of danger, your amygdala kicks, it kicks things into high gear. And biologically, it starts telling your brain, um, you know, that there's a threat. 
So it sends out an alarm and it tells your body, like, you got to prepare for defensive action. I always say it's like a smoke detector, right? Mm -hmm. So your smoke detector in your kitchen, let's say you're burning toast, your smoke detector will go off. It doesn't know that there's not actually fire there, but it's like, uh uh-oh, there's danger, right? And it wants you to respond, you know, by looking and seeing if there's a fire, whatever it is, right? So your amygdala is like your smoke detector. So what it'll do is it'll set off your hypothalamus, which is a set of stress, which triggers a set of set stress responses. So it'll increase your heart rate, your blood pressure rises, your breathing quickens. Basically the flow of blood and oxygen in your body will, will change so that if you have to run away, that fuel is used more efficiently, right? So someone will say, you know, when I have anxiety, I feel lightheaded, right? Because usually the flow of oxygen and blood in your brain, you don't need your brain right now. You just need your arms and legs to run. So I'm going to take all that oxygen and blood from up here and I'm going to put it in your arms and legs. So you feel lightheaded. You might have a stomach ache. You might feel butterflies in your stomach or nauseous. Again, all of that you know, energy that's going on to help your digestive system, your body says, you're, you're not eating right now. We need to get the heck out of here. So I'm going to take that blood and oxygen and that energy, and I'm going to put it into, you know, the, the adrenaline that you need to throw a punch or whatever it is. So there's all these physical reactions that start happening when you have an anxiety response. Um, and again, it's protective, but if you have this anxiety response, but there's nowhere to put all of that, meaning you're not running away and you're not fighting off a tiger, then your body doesn't know what to do with it, right? So it's like, I sensed a threat, I switched everything up in your body now, but you're not doing anything about it. And so that's why people will have, you know, you could have a panic attack, they'll feel super nauseous and lightheaded, they'll feel dizzy, they'll feel emotional and start like bursting out in tears and they don't even know why, like, why am I crying? Or they'll feel angry suddenly because your body has nowhere for this energy to go and it has to get out, you know? Um, So we wanna kind of retrain our brain when we have those responses to say like, there's no danger here. There's no threat. You know, you kind of have to tr- like retrain the worry and train your brain when it gets that initial like, oh, some, you know, something's going on. You say, no, no, no there's no fire. It's just smoke. We're good. You know, you just wave the towel in front of the smoke detector. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. I just burnt some toast or whatever it is. Same thing here. You just got to wave the smoke away and say, there's, I'm, I'm okay. You know, but the way you do that is by facing your fears. And a lot of the time anxiety will tell you, no, 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 you can't. Don't go there. It's too scary. You know? But that avoidance just reinforces the anxiety and just makes it worse. Right. Because that avoidance also says, if your anxiety is saying, you can't touch this, we can't, you know, we can't talk about that first day of school because that's too intense. And then if you don't do that, if you listen, then all you're doing is telling the anxiety. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's too, it's too, it's too much. We, we can't talk about that. And then, and then it loops. Yeah. And then, and then you never even get to learn if it is as scary as you think it's going to be, you know, so then in your head, it becomes this big, huge, ugly monster of scariness, but you never even get the the opportunity to go and see like, oh, you know what? It wasn't so bad. It was hard. And like, I felt awkward and I was shy or, you know, it was tough for me, but like I did it, but anxiety won't let you do that. And that's why we want to get people who have anxiety like this. We want to get them into therapy so that they can help they can get help to learn to face their fears and, you know, even challenge some of those thoughts in their heads to say, like, is this true? Like what I'm telling myself, like, does that really make sense? Like, you know, you kind of have to like fight back against that anxiety voice and challenge some of those thoughts, you know? Right. You've mentioned panic attacks a couple of times. What is a panic attack? 
So a panic attack is basically like anxiety, like on steroids, right? So it's anxiety that gets so severe that you will start feeling like as if you're having a heart attack, you are not having a heart attack. And there's actually nothing you won't, you know, you don't pass out from a panic attack and nothing will happen in terms of the, the health of your heart, but it can feel like literally someone is sitting on your chest. You'll have trouble breathing. You can't catch your breath. Um, you might feel dizzy. You might feel nauseous. You might be crying. Usually panic attacks are pretty short. They can feel like forever, but usually they're not more than like two minutes max. There have been times where people say, I was panicking for 10 minutes. I was panicking for five minutes. If that's ever happened to you, you are normal. It's not like you're some crazy outlier here. Like it's happened. Generally though, panic attacks are pretty quick and short, but they feel horrible. And what happens with a panic attack is that sometimes people will have one and then there's the fear of having the panic attack. And then that becomes a whole new cycle. Oh my mm. God, I didn't want that to happen to me again. So now I'm panicking about having panic, you know? Um, and that, that can become a whole other, you know, ugly monster that we want to tackle. And so then what usually what I'll do in therapy is like, we'll talk about, we're kind of removing the fear from the panic. Okay. So what happens if you can't breathe during your panic attack? What, what is the function of your panic attack? You know, it's just your brain trying to protect you. You know, you're not dying. You know, you're going to be okay. You know that it's going to pass in two minutes. So you can kind of even welcome it, right? And a lot of like CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which is like usually the main mode of therapy that's used for anxiety. A lot of it will say like, welcome your anxiety. Don't be afraid of it, you know? And you can even say things like, hello, anxiety. I'm not afraid of you. Come on in, have a seat. Let's have a talk, do your thing. And then you can leave when you're done, you know? And so that's how you can even view a panic attack. It's like, I'm not afraid of you. I know you're coming. I know this scene very well. We've done it before. Let's do it and like, get it over with. And sometimes that empowers the person to not be afraid of the panic. And eventually it can subside. Um, so what the panic attack really but, is, is just the, like, because the body is prioritizing this fight or flight response, and then there is no danger, like there is no tiger, there is no, nothing that you need, you don't need to run, you don't need to do anything. It's a way for that, but, but you're still worried. So you're still building up this energy, and you're still activating this fight or flight response, and it's got to go someplace. So it releases with this like quickening of the heart and inability to catch your breath that is usually pretty short, and we call a panic attack. That, and sometimes it's just that the panic comes, the fear comes so quickly that it's like zero to 60. And so instead of like a buildup of fear of like, oh, I'm nervous and oh, this is stressing me out. And oh, I've been thinking about it. It's just like, I'm in danger. Oh my God. And it's just a blast of anxiety that just feels, like I said, like uh, like a heart attack, someone's sitting on you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, for people that have panic attacks, it's really, really hard. And there's people that then, feel afraid to go out of their houses because they're like, well, what if I have a panic attack in the store and I have to drop everything and run out? Or what if I have a panic attack while I'm driving? Like, what if I get into an accident because I'm having a panic attack, you know? And so again, in therapy, we'll say, okay, so let's challenge that. What would happen if you start panicking while you're driving? Okay, you would pull over to the side of the road. You would put the brake on, right? You would put in park and you would just sit for a minute and you would breathe. And then when you feel calm, you would get back on the road, right? But again, Anxiety doesn't let them do that. Well, if you have a panic attack while you're driving, you're going to like veer into oncoming traffic and you're going to kill people and then you're going to end up in jail and then your family's going to hit it, right? That's what anxiety does to you. And that's why I think the therapeutic support is so important because with anxiety, I always say you have two brains when you have anxiety. You have your anxiety brain and then you have your rational brain. Your rational brain is like not working when anxiety is in the room. And so 
as much as you'll know afterwards, why was I freaking out? It doesn't make sense. Why am I terrified of throwing up? Why am I terrified of going on an airplane? Why am I terrified of, right? In that moment, and that's why I say, for if you have a loved one with anxiety, please do not try to reason with them when they're anxious. It doesn't work. It just makes, it makes it worse. You cannot reason with them. That part of their brain is shut off because it's in survival mode. It's not thinking about what you're saying. So you just have to sit there with them and do not try to reason with them. Don't explain it to them. Just help them get through that anxiety. And at a later point, talk about it with them, you know? Um, not not in the middle of the panic attack. That's not no. that's not when we're going to talk about how this is not, not a big not deal. In panic and even not in forget if, even if it's not panic, even just in the worry, it's not going to work. I have a daughter with anxiety. She's a teenager, and she would always tell me, you know, like she would get this anxiety and be freaking out, and I would be like, okay, like you know, let's talk. And she'd be like, you're just making it worse. She's like, I know this doesn't make sense. I need to just like do this right now. You know, <laughs> She's like, yep. just a therapist. I'm like, yeah, but I, when I'm here, I'm just mom. I don't know what I'm doing. You right, know? Exactly. But, when it's your own, when it's your own kids, it's shoemakers. It's the shoemakers kids all over again. We have no, I am clueless and I have no idea what to do, but she said, she's like, you just, it makes it worse when you try to explain to me why I shouldn't have these feelings. And, and by the way, we know this, like when everyone's feeling some kind of way, like if we're trying to explain to them why they should feel differently that's so invalidating and they're like no i just need to feel like this right now right. now i'm worried and i'm dumb like this is not yeah. helpful yeah and like i know that i'm that i'm not making sense don't remind me that stresses me out even more that i can't control it and so i think that's important to just be like wow this is really hard for you like what can i do you know right um and and i think that's important Right. Yeah, for, for sure. So last week we spoke about depression. And by the way, if you haven't listened to that episode, go. It, it is not depressing to listen to. It's very empowering and it's good yeah. information. Um, but uh, depression and anxiety are almost one word, right? And there's a lot of talk about how depression and anxiety have, uh, you know, millennials have a higher rates of depression and anxiety and things like that. How do these two things tie in together? Are they like, they're not the same thing. We know they're not the same thing. We've just spent a very long time defining both of them and they are different. Um, do you think that that's just because like, are they generally found together? Why do they get lumped? Why do they get lumped in that way? And is there a relationship between the two? Okay, so usually depression and anxiety, we call them comorbidities, meaning they usually exist together. Not always, but usually exist together. And generally, someone who has anxiety, if they leave it untreated, it does, it can eventually turn into depression, right? Because if you're not dealing with all of these anxious feelings, you end up engaging in behaviors that disconnect you from people. I'm going to hide at home. I'm not going to talk to anyone. I'm going to stay inside. I'm too, the world is too scary. It's too yucky. It's, it's too unpredictable. And so it makes sense then that when you disconnect yourself from the things that bring you joy, because it's scary, things that could bring you joy because they're scary, you end up kind of sinking into this black hole. And so that's why if you have a child who is struggling with anxiety, you really want to get them help early on so that we reduce the chances of it spiraling into depression. Um, people with depression sometimes have anxiety, not always, you know, and people with anxiety sometimes have depression. But again, usually, you know, they do occur together and 
again, one anxiety can end up turning into, if it's untreated, depression, especially with children. And so you really want to make sure that um, you catch it, you know, when they're young. And instead of being like, oh, they're so needy or, oh, she's so like attached to me or, oh, she's a perfectionist or whatever. Okay. Those are warning signs. And you want to like, look a little bit closer, you know, why is she so attached to you? Like, and what's your response? And, and then when you try to detach from her, like what's going on, you know, is she, you know, she's doing well during the day at school or like her teacher calls and says like, she's crying all day and she's sad and she can't concentrate and she doesn't have friends. And okay. Then you want to talk to someone about that, you know? So the two, the two can occur together, but it's usually one leads into the other. And so we want to really, um, focus on treating anxiety and giving skills, you know, to, like I said, help a person reframe that mindset of like only terrible things are going to happen and the world is not a safe place and I'm not a safe person or whatever it is. Um, we want to give them those coping skills to learn that they can handle hard things, you know, so that there isn't that despair of like, you know, like I, I can't, I can't live in this world. It feels too overwhelming, you right. know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that seems, that, that makes sense to me that those two things would kind of go together. When we were planning this series, uh, we were throwing around all different topics. Um, you know, we, we could have done a 27 part series about, you know, all the different mental health topics that we wanted to discuss. Um, and one of the topics that I think it was, I think I brought it up at one point was OCD. Um, and, and you said that OCD fits in here and, and that, you know, this is the time to be talking about that. So yeah. why, you know, and, and also I think that, you know, when, when we talk about OCD, there's, oh, it's, it's, there's a, there's a vernacular version of it. And then there's a clinical version of it. Yeah. So talk me through the, you know, what OCD is, how does it fit into anxiety and, and what are the ways that it gets kind of misused in our, you know, vernacular day-to-day -day life? So OCD is an anxiety disorder. Um, and it is, not just like, oh, I don't like when things are dirty or like, I like my grid on Instagram to be like color coordinated or, you know, like that's not OCD and people- I wish everyone could see how far your eyes just rolled when you gave that Instagram <laughs> example. But like, and I hear, but I see people like write that in their captions and I'm like, can you please like not do that? Because when we use language like that, when we use it as like these everyday like verbs, you know, or whatever adjectives, adjectives, not verbs, um, adjectives, we really end up causing harm to the people that like have these actual conditions because we don't understand them. And then we minimize them and we don't give people the proper support, right? So if everyone's like, oh, I have OCD because, you know, my bed like has like a little wrinkle in it, you know, at the bottom, like then the people who are really struggling, like we don't understand, you know, and, and maybe they don't even get the help they need, you know? So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder, and it is characterized by obsessions and compulsions. And really the obsessions are like a mental state where you just obsess over like slight things that feel huge. And then you have the compulsions, like there has to be both, right? The compulsions to try to relieve some of those obsessions. So an example would be, um, I used to actually have a coworker who had OCD, great guy, nicest person alive. He used to, um, we were in school together and, and working together, but I remember one time I saw him in class, he was sitting next to me and he kept like looking up and looking down and looking up and looking down. And he would like tap his paper twice, look up, look down, tap paper twice. And I was like, what? I didn't even know he had OCD. I certainly didn't understand it at that point. I was a young 20 something in, you know, grad school. I didn't know. 
And I was like, what is he doing? And then afterwards, after class, he was like, oh, like I saw that you like noticed, you know, during class, I was like, oh yeah, like, you know, no problem. Like I wasn't really, uh-huh, you know, <laughs> no, I didn't notice anything. Um, and he's like, I just want to tell you, I have like OCD. And he's like, in class, I get like super anxious. It was before a quiz that he was terrified. He's going to like fail this quiz. And for, you know, whatever that obsession was, I'm going to fail the quiz. I'm going to flunk out. I'm going to be homeless. I'm not going to, you know, amount to nothing. And so the compulsion was in order to like reduce that stress, he had to like look up at the ceiling two times, look down two times and like tap the paper. It's usually like these behavioral random things that don't make sense, um, you know, pushes to like engage in these behaviors. Um, So, you know, another example would be like someone who's walking, let's say, and like they don't want to step on the crack in the sidewalk because they feel like if I do something horrible is going to happen. And and it could be anything on a spectrum of like that I'll I'll hurt myself or that somebody will end up getting hit by a car. Right. Again, things that don't make sense. Um, And so if they step on the crack or they think that they they're not sure, they might spend the entire day stepping backwards and then stepping over again and being like, wait, did I step on it? No. okay, go back. Go again. Go back. And it really like impairs their functioning. Um, it consumes your life, you know, that you just can't stop thinking about it. And so we see it sometimes there's something called religious OCD, where people will, you know, if you're Jewish, and you're someone who prays, that they're so careful to enunciate each word. And they say it so slowly. And they have to make sure, oh, no, 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 no. I got to do it again, go back, start from the beginning of the prayer. You know, and if you have a 45 minute prayer service that's taking these people three and a half hours and they keep starting over and over and over and over, right? It's not about the religion. It's not about like, I want to make sure I said the right words because God, it's about, I have this compulsion to make sure I'm saying the words right because of whatever reason that I believe, right? And so when we do therapy with someone who has OCD, we always say like, it's not the religion that's the problem, it's it's the mental illness. So we wanna give them the religion back. You know, We wanna like right. let them be able to pray properly. Um, and so, you know, the most common things that we see with OCD, and this is what people kind of, you know, I think ends up twisting is like, yes, there is a fear of germs and contamination and there is hand-washing, but there's so much more than that. You know, it could be a fear of, of certain textures. It could be a fear of, like I said, of, of people being angry at you, you know? And, and so with my friend who was my coworker, I remember we used to like run a group together. We were like clinical interns. And one time, like he said something in the group and I was like, oh, actually, and I like put in my two cents. And at the end of the group, he was like, are you mad at me that I said X, Y, and Z during the group? And I'm like, no, like, I just, I just thought of like another thing that I wanted to add. He's like, okay, literally three minutes later, comes back into the room. Are you, are you mad at me? I was like, mm. nope, still not mad. I'm like, we're good. Okay. Three minutes later comes back, Rachel, are you mad? Are you mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you, Rob. Like, please, you know? And I started getting mad. And then at that point, it just reinforces, oh, she is mad at me, you know, but right. I'm like, I'm starting to annoyed. Yeah. You, you asked me 67 times. Am I mad at you? Like now I'm getting mad at you. Yeah. You know, and then it, <laughs> it's freaking out. And then he would send me like instant messages or whatever at the time, you know, I don't know what he has that anymore. A chat He'd be like, are you mad at me? And I was like, oh my God, this guy's like making me insane. You know? Right. And so that what ends up happening also is that people don't want to be friends with you. You lose relationships. And then again, there's that spiral into depression. It kicks up your OCD even more. You know, someone's going to hate me. Someone's not going to like me. So it's really like a tortured existence. Um, 
And so, you know, the treatment is to, to be on medication and then there's CBT, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy, emotion response prevention therapy, which is um, that you'll have, you know, they'll experience a feeling and then they're going to want to respond, right? With their behavior and then you prevent it. Okay, so now you have this feeling like you have to walk over the sidewalk again because you thought you stepped on the crack. You can't do it. You got to keep going. And it feels, it, it's like torture for them, right? Like, 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 like nails on a chalkboard, like horrible experience. But the more they do it, the hope is that they see, okay, I don't have to engage in these compulsions. You know, I can have that feeling, that thought, and I can keep going, you know, but right. it's, it's really- One of the things that you mentioned about the compulsions that I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding is that, you know, this, this not making sense part that, you know, like you said, that like if they step on the crack, then someone will get hit by a car. And I get that, like, if that's a compulsion, that doesn't make sense. But, you know, you also mentioned the, the most common, I don't know if it's the most common, but the most stereotypical, I guess we could say. When I think of someone with OCD, I think of a germaphobe. I think of someone who like needs everything very neat, someone who's constantly washing their hands, someone who's constantly scrubbing and cleaning. I'm, I'm rewatching Glee now. And there's a, there's a teacher that has OCD and she like scrubs her desk with a toothbrush. Like, that's what I think of when I think of, um, when I think of OCD, it kind of makes sense to me that if you're worried about germs, cleaning makes sense. Like that, those, those, that is that just the exception to the rule? Like, obviously no one needs to be scrubbing their desk with a toothbrush, but there's like, like, yeah, if you're worried about getting sick, you should be washing your hands more. If there's anything we've learned from the last two years, it's wash your hands and, you know. So, but I mean, so think about it, right? Think about the people like during the pandemic, maybe even like in the very beginning when we really literally had no idea what was going on. And so, yeah, people were being more on top of their hand washing and maybe even like wiping down their groceries at first and, you know, wiping down surfaces and whatever, and definitely being more on top of their hygiene. There's a difference between that and washing your hands over and over and over again until they, till they bleed, till they're raw, and then putting hand sanitizer on top of that, right? And the alcohol is seeping into your like raw ripped up hands from washing, right? And then wiping down every surface again and again and again and again and being terrified and not wanting to bring the, the bags in and because I wipe them, but I'm scared that, you know, something else is on, right? There's this intense fear that's literally like harming you, right? Because you can get infections if you're washing your hands so much that they're bleeding, you know, like that's not good for you. Um, or if you're spending so much time in the bathroom washing your hands and you're missing out on life again, like this is a problem. And I think that like, that's important to, to kind of um, differentiate also is like, there's this intense fear of germs and contamination and sickness more than you know, what we would typically see. So yeah, I think during, during this pandemic, we've all kind of been a little bit more wary and we're like, Hey, I don't want to get sick. And especially if you're vulnerable, you know, because of a, a certain condition, a health issue or a pregnancy or whatever it is, you're going to be a little bit more wary, but again, how is that manifesting? Is it manifesting in the way that it's like literally terrifying for you? And it's all you can think about. And it's the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning and then it's all consuming throughout your day, you know, and for someone with OCD, the first thought they'll have when they wake up is, am I going to get sick today? I don't want to get sick today. Okay. What do I have to do? Okay. Let me go wash my hands. Okay. I'm going to go downstairs. Okay. I need to wash my hands again. Wait, I touched the railing. Okay. I need to go wipe down the railing. Okay. And it could be, if you got to get to work at you know, 8.30 and you're spending an hour and a half going back up the stairs and then wiping it and then going back down and then wiping it and then washing your hands. This is really going to get in the way of your life, you know? And right. so that's kind of how we, again, I think there's like that 
you know, we've all kind of been a little bit more germ wary, but is it impacting our lives in a major way? I think if anything, people did not wash their hands enough before this pandemic. Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, wash your hands after the bathroom? Okay. Like, why do we have to tell people that? Um, (laughs) I know, right? So I think if anything, people were just doing what they should be doing. But then there were people who were literally like terrified right you know and what what i'm what i'm hearing is the difference between the vernacular use of oh i'm so ocd and the clinical use of someone with obsessive compulsive disorder is that there's a difference between caring about something and obsessing and, and being compulsive about it so caring about having a neat house so clean your house and then you clean your house and you move on as opposed to someone who is obsessive compulsive about that can't stop cleaning their house and that and and then it and and it impacts their ability to leave their house because they're constantly cleaning their house. And also usually the compulsion of cleaning their house has more to do with the obsession. So you might be like, I want to clean my house because a mess stresses me out, which is, that's like a healthy, normal, typical thing. They might be cleaning their house because they are thinking, I'm having like really weird, perverted, twisted thoughts. And the only way to get rid of them is if my house is clean, then my brain is clean. And so I have to do this. And this is actually really common for people with OCD to question, am I a pedophile? Am I a murderer? Am I a, you know, sex freak? Am I a, like the things I think about, like, oh my God, it doesn't, I feel disgusting. What's wrong with me? And it's actually parts of their brain that they cannot control. And so, yeah, then there's a lot of shame and stress and, you know, again, <laughs> a lot of, excuse me, a lot of depression that comes with this because their brains are so out of control, which feels very scary for them. And that's why they will do anything. Please make these thoughts go away. I'm thinking about murdering my sister at night. Like why? I don't want to, you know? Um, And it's scary for them. And so they feel these compulsions then, okay, I have to clean. I have to click the door four times. I have to go check, you know, this 10 times. I have to tap this thing twice. I have to walk up the stairs once and then go back three times. And then right? A lot of, there's a lot of like magical numbers here also, right? There's a lot of counting and numbers. um, And that's, they they call it magical numbers, right? That that helps them feel like in control. And if they do this a certain amount of times, then they're okay. And that, and those thoughts will go away or those things won't come true. Um, And so it's a really like tortured existence to be living in a brain that is struggling with OCD. So it's not just like, oh, I like when my like hangers are color coordinated or like, you know, I like when my shirts are neatly stacked, like, okay, that's great. Um, but like, you like that because it just makes you feel good. They're not doing it because it makes them feel good. They're doing it because there is some tortured thoughts sw- like swimming around their head that they need to get rid of. And the only way to do it is through that compulsion, through that behavior. Got it. So is it fair to say that OCD is kind of like anxiety on steroids? Yeah. Yeah. It's an intense anxiety disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if there's someone let's say around around me or in my life who has either a vanilla anxiety disorder or something more intense um, like OCD, what are, you know, we've already mentioned not trying to reason with them when they're in the worry, um, but are there other ways to support, um, to support the people around us who might be going through this? Yeah. So I would say definitely learning about anxiety is big, right? So reading about it, listening to, there's a million podcasts, following pages on Instagram, on social media that talk about it. 
really important because I think if you can understand, if you don't have anxiety yourself, it will be very hard to understand the brain of an anxious person. Um, and again, like we think that if we just reason with them, like that they'll think differently and that's not how it works. So understanding it from like, you know, the mental health perspective, reading about it, and even listening to people's experiences with anxiety, I think is really helpful because then you'll know, you know, how their brain is working. Um, and then even asking them, like, what do you need, right? So like when my daughter said, like, don't try to explain to me why I shouldn't be feeling that way or why it doesn't make sense, like, that just makes it worse. That was actually really helpful for me because I thought she did want to know, like, yeah, but you know that you're not going to throw up because you never do. And she's like, oh my God, like, I know this already, you know, that's not helpful. So I had to ask her, so what do you want me to do? You know, and she was like, just sit with me, you know, hold my hand whatever it is, help me be grounded. Like, just don't, don't try to explain it away. And then later we can talk about it. So I would, you know, definitely learn about what is helpful to them in those moments. If it's someone that you're close to, you can bring up the idea of therapy. Hey, I was reading about anxiety and I read that like CBT is actually like really great for anxiety. Like, have you thought about going? I think it would be so helpful to you. Um, bringing that up, Medication is also big. Again, so if it's someone, if it's your, you know, if it's your spouse or a family member, then you can talk about that too, how sometimes medication is needed to help manage. And I've had this where I've had clients who will come to me for anxiety and we can't really even make progress in therapy because the anxiety is so strong. So we need medication to help kind of like temper that anxiety voice so that they can implement some of the skills that we're learning. So sometimes medication is needed. So asking them, you know, again, bringing up therapy, bringing up, um, psychiatric medication, learning about it yourself, trying to just, you know, have empathy and not be judgmental. Um, and again, it's hard. If you, if you have never had anxiety before, it will be hard for you to understand, like, why is this such a big deal for you? Like, I don't just get over it, you know, but you can't just get over anxiety. You can't just like smile and it goes away, you know, that that's literally not how it works. Um, so I think just like kind of being supportive and trying to understand um, is a really important piece because again the more pressure we put on them also like not to think that way just makes them think that way even more you know um and it, right. and it makes I th- them feel I think worse also, so we really like, just want them the, to feel right there's also there's a level here of, of understanding that you don't understand yeah and you could say that to them I don't know what it's like you know I don't have anxiety so I don't know what it's like tell me what it's like for you you know how do you feel when you're terrified, you know, in the airport and you're freaking out because you're about to get on a plane because you're thinking we're going to crash and die. And you already know all the statistics, you know, it's safer in the air than in a car, you know it already, but you're terrified. What's that like for you? You know, we're standing here. Tell me what you're experiencing right now. And so I think that's really powerful. And again, not trying to fix it or change it, just saying, okay, you're, you're having this feeling and like, I'm here with you in it, you know, and hopefully it'll pass. You know, I mean, and I think the fact that if they're in the airport with you, that's already a pretty good sign that they're, they're going to, that's far, right. They're willing to try to push through it, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but that's important to just try to like, ask them what their experience is like, because for everyone, it's different, you know, and right. everyone has different needs. Some people do want to, you know, hear the stats. They want to be reminded, you know, other people just want you to breathe with them. Other people want to be distracted, you know, so you got to ask, what do you need from me? How can I be helpful? I don't get it. I don't know what it's like, but I want to know what it's like. And I want to know what helps. Right. And then, and then, t- and then taking their lead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that all makes a lot of sense to me. This has been fascinating, especially because I'm particularly fascinated by these things that 
like you said, you started off by saying anxiety is not a bad thing until it is. So, you know, it's something that we're all going to experience on some level in our lives. Um, And some people are going to experience that to a clinical level and then, and understanding what those people are going through. And also, I think it's also one of those things that is so tempting to say, like, suck it up and deal with it. Come on, honey, we all have problems. And while I'm sure that there's a level of resilience involved, I guess, yes, we all have problems, but some people need medication to handle those problems. So I, uh, understanding goes, a little understanding goes a very long way. So thank you for, thank you for going on this walk with me. I, I do appreciate it. If somebody wants to learn more about Rachel and um, hear more about just just learn from her and she's a good follow in general uh you can find her on instagram she's at rachel underscore tuckman underscore lmhc and i will see you next week and we're gonna continue we're gonna continue down this road we're gonna talk about a totally different topic next week it'll be fun awesome great see you then yeah thanks for listening if you'd like to learn more about rachel the links are in the show notes this is the second in a series that will be running throughout the winter sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this now so you don't miss the upcoming episodes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 12 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifkia Twitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.